Hi there, wanna hear? Welcome to Stories from the Field, a production from Firefly Inclusion Solutions. Each day, Jason and I are fortunate to meet and work with individuals that are driving culture and systems change across their communities, in their organizations, and across the globe. From diversity, equity, and inclusion experts to enthusiasts from all fields and disciplines, we're thrilled to bring you their insights and stories of transformation. Let's get started. Paul, thanks so much for jumping on. As I shared with you, you know, our inspiration for this podcast was really because Jason and I get to meet all these amazing people in our sessions. And I felt like, wow, you know, we are so privileged to have this type of access. And so we wanted to be able to create this platform to really be able to share you <laughs> with DNI enthusiasts or practitioners, people that may not necessarily have um, access to the type of insights that you have. And I, I really loved, I felt like in our session, you kind of blew it up a little bit with your insights because you took it to a different level that um, was just so refreshing and so interesting to us. And so, especially in the context of this intersectionality with AI and inclusive design, which I feel like often doesn't get covered in DNI sessions where we talk a lot about talent and everybody goes straight to recruiting. But I think this is this really takes it to the next level. And so that to me is very, very exciting. So if you could just introduce yourself, however you'd like to do that. I know you're involved in a lot of things, not just in your day job. And um, and then also what's something that's that's really cool that you're working on, you know, that that I think people would be interested to hear because I, I wonder if we have any concept of, of the AI field in general and kind of what's going on. So we'd love to hear from you. Yes. Yeah, so uh, thanks, for, first of all, for having me uh, on and Jason. It's a, it was a great session we, we had together on DNI. And I think, you know, these kinds of sessions and discussions where we bring together different fields are for me the most interesting because that's the kinds of discussions where, you know, we all stand to learn most. So, uh, you know, first of all, thanks for that. Uh, maybe for the quick intro. So, I'm Paul Vanderboer. I'm uh, you know, currently based out of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. I am a senior director of data science at Prozis Group. And this is a large, uh, one of the largest uh, tech investors globally. We, we you know, predominantly invest in you know, food delivery, educational technology, and, and many other different platforms. And, uh, and I'm, I'm part of the, the AI team at Prozis, uh, which we started a couple of years ago. And in that role, I, you know, I basically help apply AI better, smarter, more responsibly uh, throughout the group. And, uh, but, but also what I you know, still spend a lot of time on today is, is um, a foundation called Data Science for Social Good, which um, I got involved in back in the days when I was still in my PhD uh, in the U.S. at Carnegie Mellon. You know, that was at that time a group of people that basically aimed to bring data science skills and, and capabilities to problems that didn't have access to these kinds of skills and, and predominantly in the social good area, which basically means predominantly, um, you know, small government agencies, federal agencies, other kind of government departments, school districts, um, NGOs, uh, nonprofits that were working on meaningful uh, and important problems that uh, didn't, especially when we started, um, you know, many years ago, uh, five, six years ago, didn't have access to the data science talent to help them with, you know, do their work uh, better. And so I'm still part of that organization. I'm a board member of the Data Science for Social Good Foundation. And uh, under that, you know, we initially started with an educational program we called the Summer Fellowship. 
and that has since grown, you know, to, you know, various locations over the world and several other activities that we do under the foundation. And, uh, you know, maybe 30 seconds on my background. So I, I started in engineering, aerospace engineering, and then moved, actually worked in, in, in that field for a little bit, Siemens uh, in India many, many years ago, and then uh, moved to work on my PhD in, um, in the U.S., in engineering, spent a couple of years in consulting, worked on data science for social good, and then eventually moved uh, to Prozis, where I, I still am today. Paul, I feel like you should have a cape, you know, to go with like the data science for good. Cool? You know, because, yeah, oh. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it, it really is quite impressive, right? And and especially, you know, we were sending back articles of what's going on in the context of ethics and. This is truly the new world that I think many of us don't understand. And so the fact that we have amazing people like you working on this in itself is no small thing. So you should get a cape. I think that would be just to go with like all the. <laughs> and, and, and many more along with me doing this work. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Thank you for that. So, Paul, I, I, I have a question for you. So in our prototyping inclusion session, right, we talked about the pitfalls of bias in AI. And, and what we know is that data reflects the social, historical, and political conditions in which it was created, right? And so artificial intelligence systems essentially learn based on the data that they're given. And we see this, this bias play out in various different systems like facial recognition software and even the recruitment tools that taught itself to dislike women. Or for those of our audience that aren't familiar with these types of examples, can you share some of the pitfalls of, of AI of, and, and um, how it's being incorporated? and, and what do you think are some of the greatest challenges in this work? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Although maybe I want to state up front, you know, I'm I'm a you know an optimist when it comes to to the applications of data science and and uh, spend a lot of time thinking about how we could do data science, uh, you know, well and better and and, and you know for for good impact um, in a responsible way. That that of course um, doesn't mean that you know there there aren't many examples like some of the ones you mentioned where. Indeed, you know, data science and, 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 and a lot of the techniques around data science have been used for, in ways they shouldn't have in it. And actually that list, unfortunately, you know, is growing, you know, because the, the, the areas and the vast range of areas in which machine learning is being applied increases over time. So, yeah, there are, you know, many regrettable instances of use of, of data science and continue to be. And I think... Um, you know, there's lots of discussion that, that, um, uh, that is going on in the community around how you deal with that and what the biggest areas are. But uh, one thing that, that, you know, the way I try to look at it is actually when you think about the, whether it's in the data that re represents, you know, the his, you know his historic bias in the system or whether it's the lack of, you know, good training of the model or the deployment, um, you know, I, I like to think of it kind of as a system, right? So you, you don't just take a model and put it in production and blame the model for being biased or then blame it on the, on the data or even on the engineer that was involved and say that engineer had a biased intention. It's the entire system, right? So there's a decision process and whether that involves, uh, you know, let's say hiring a candidate, right? A good candidate for a role. Um, there are many steps in that process, right? And uh, that includes, it starts with, with the job description, right? And how you formulate that. And you probably know there are tons of tools out there that actually help you write and formulate the job description in a way that, you know, maximizes diverse pool of applicants, right? And those tools are AI-based, some of them. And, you know, they look at, you know, how you phrase a certain part of the job responsibilities, 
um, that would maybe you know appeal more to a man or a woman or different parts of the population, and making sure that you do that in a way that you attract you know a diverse group of applicants, which is you know of course the benefit of the hiring uh, team. And then it has to do with the interview process, right? What are the processes that you, you follow? The questions you ask, uh, you know, how methodical are you about that? You know, what is the room for bias to creep in there? And then eventually, you know, how you you know select the final candidates and so on, right? So that's an entire process and. You know, if machine learning is part of that, and, and the regrettable example, I think you're alluding to the uh, the Amazon one, right, where they trained a model on, on resumes and, and and tried to figure out, okay, what was the predict, the, what were the predictors of success in Amazon, and then they found out that that you know because of the vastly male population there, ended up predicting, you know, gender as one of the you know, being, being a male as a higher probability of being successful, being hired, uh, and so you know, and, and the model should never, in any under any condition, have full responsibility or full authority to decide on the candidate. But uh, first of all, because it can't, right? But also because there is this entire system that is the hiring pipeline, right? The practice of hiring somebody. And in that system, you can do lots of things using AI. Also, some things you can't use AI for, for both, for both good and bad, right? So being aware of that, where, you know, how you can, can use AI to, to, to make, to hire the right candidates and thinking about it as a system and not just a model is, is very important, I think. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. You mentioned, you know, like Textio and, and we talk about a lot of these, these different tools, right, in being able to really leverage AI for good to your, your optimism. And what I loved in our session is you talked about how you can go, like you, in your reflection, you know, what can you do to go in and create the parameters for things like fairness, right, or equity and and it's so important to know that people like you are working on this. And so I don't know if you if you mind sharing again, just, you know, some of your insights around like how do we establish or how do we go back and validate for this, right, to be able to put those checks and balances into, into the system that you were referring to? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's a topic where... I believe we've we've actually made quite a bit of progress in the in the you know recent years in terms of being able to one incorporate fairness and bias into you know machine learning applications, but also building tools around making it easier to uh, measure and quantify how biased or fair a model is or isn't. And you know what we've learned in doing that, and, and we've done some work inside the Data Science for Social Good uh, Foundation. You know, le- releasing tools such as open source tools such as Equitas, which allow data scientists to measure bias and fairness in, in, in their models, is that it's very very important to define what kind of fairness we mean, right? I mean, depending on the application, you might care about being fair across different types of of populations, right? And and thinking about how you want to protect the person that the model is going to affect, right? Are you thinking about fairness across, you know, age or gender or ethnicity or all of the above? And how do you make those trade-offs in, in, in a very conscious way? Well, we now have tools that help us measure, you know, how, how fair a model is because there are many definitions of fairness, right? And, and probably depending on, on the use case, those definitions are very, very different. And, and it can be about equal opportunity or equal outcomes or you know, equal likelihood of you know getting some kind of intervention. Like when we talk about you know in data science for social, we do a lot of work on as inspections related. So think about government agencies going out and inspecting certain facilities for waste, you know, handling or things like that. You know, the likelihood of being inspected is obviously correlated to you know you getting 
found, you know, in violation of some kind of uh, uh, code of conduct or whatever. And so, you know, the, being fair, uh, you know, along the dimensions of getting caught, let's say, is another way of, of measuring uh, fairness. And, and so you know, a lot of that part of the discussion happens outside of, let's say, the modeling efforts. Right? It has to do with, okay, again, it's a system. Right, so with the system, we're either trying to figure out, you know, which students need extracurricular support because they're at higher risk of failing, right, or which patients need some kind of intervention because they're at higher risk of getting readmitted to the hospital, or you know, and so on. And each of those different situations will mean that uh, you want to have a different a definition of fairness to start with, and second, it will also, which is really really important in the case of machine learning, uh, because you know, as a sort of segue, no machine learning model is perfect. Never, right? There's always going to be some mistakes. And so you need to think about in this fairness discussion, what are the costs of a mistake? So if you make a mistake and you, you know, send, I don't know, to the, to the case I was making, if you make a mistake and, and shortlist a student for extracurricular support or after school support, you know, that might actually not be too bad, right? Because they just get extra support. Maybe the opportunity cost is that another student that really needed it didn't get it, but it's, it's not potentially, it's not harmful to the student that receives it. It's harmful to the student that should have received that didn't get it. And so the, the, let's say the inequality and the harms of the mistakes, thinking about false positives and false negatives, which are terms that we use to denominate these mistakes are really, really, you know, important to think through carefully, because then if you think about credit decisions, for example, if you give somebody credit that shouldn't get it or didn't give them credit when they should have got, those are very, very fundamental, right? And the cost, let's say the harm, that might be inflicted, you know, translates to very differently depending on, on the situation. And so, the, you know, thinking about that uh, in the definitions of fairness and then how we deal with that as a machine learning data science community, uh, you can't do that on our own, right? It has to be in the context of the entire system. I think that's something that, uh, you know, comes up a lot is to say, okay, well, these data points are people, right? There's no such thing as data, actually. Right? Data is a representation of somebody or something that happened to that person. And you're trying to piece it together to predict you know, what you want to do and how you want to help that person or, or sell that person something or whatever. And um, it's very, all of a sudden when it's about my data, I start thinking about it differently, <laughs> right? When my data is being used in Facebook in certain ways and you know, I see it, they're like, hey, wait a second. Right? And I, I mean, I, I'm involved in this stuff you know, in my professional world. And then when I'm the subject of it, it's like, wait a second. It's almost like you, you experience it in different ways. And uh, we have to be careful not to sort of lose that perspective as, as, as data scientists. It's not fun to, to think of yourself as the product, right? Oh, not at all. No, it's not good for us because us as data scientists, because, you know, a lot of these data sharing issues that, that some of the companies are, you know, bringing to the front page make it harder for us to do our work right, right? I mean, listen, I work at a tech company doing data science. So what's, somebody might say, well, why, why aren't, is what you're doing different? Well, yes, it is, right? At least I like to answer that we're trying to make it very different. So, um, yeah. I saw this tweet with like the comparison of the kind of data that's tracked with like the iPhone versus like yeah. WhatsApp, you know, like the, the different, yeah, like, it's, uh, it's crazy. like yeah. the nutritional list, um, yeah. you know, yeah, version, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, And um, it's tough. I have a lot of family in Romania. And so one of the things that keeps me on WhatsApp is like, oh, no, like, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but I am on WhatsApp still. And it's it's really interesting, right? Because it, it ingrains itself in your life. And then you have to do this full like lift of like 
this mature tree (laughs) of efficiencies, you know, in your life that make it very hard. So it's a tricky thing, right? Yeah, it's absolutely tricky. And, 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 uh, you know, I also be honest that I have some school groups and whatever for my son that are still sticking around in WhatsApp. But, and I think everybody has that. And especially, you know, I have these discussions with, with my family and others, like, you know, not, not living in the U.S. or whatever. And it's like, well, uh, I have nothing to hide, right? They say, right? So why should I be worried about? It? It's like, well, it's not about that. It's also about the fact that we have no choice, right? So Facebook, I mean, Facebook is just one example. There's others doing other things wrong. And um but uh, you have no choice, right? Like, what do you go to if you want to have an alternative for, for these products? It's just too much, um, too, too much uh, market hey, power. Go to Signal. Go to Signal. It's open Yeah, so that's I- what I have. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. works well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so no, I, I think, uh, you know, that we could talk about it forever. I think uh, there, there's just lots of little intricacies here. There's one, one more example, by the way, which I thought, for me, I, I, I was recent that um, was an interesting one on the perspective of the use of machine learning and how it's so hard as a, you know, if you talk about, you know, me creating empathy for the user, it's so hard for me to do that sitting in Amsterdam. So uh, we, we work with credit models and, um, you know, we were discussing like, okay, so there's regulatory requirements about how you're open about some decisions that you're making with regard to credit. And, you know, in my world, it, when you get denied credit in the Netherlands, you need you, you have the right to an explanation why you got denied credit, right? And that's that's kind of how the regulatory system has set up it's been set up in Europe. So when you get denied credit, it's sort of like as a potential opportunity has been taken away from you. So that should be really justified, and there's this very strict process and blah blah. blah. If you go to South Africa, where we have also business, it's completely different because what has happened in South Africa? Banks actually have had in the past developed a practice that was basically getting people to buy their credit, knowing that they would default, knowing that they would then be able to seize their assets, knowing that they would then make a lot of money down the road because they could claim, uh, you know, a whole bunch of uh, collections based on that defaulted credit. And so the protection of the South African law on credit is much more around, you know, if you give somebody credit, you better know that they understood that, they will not default, that you understood that, you, that, that they will not default, and they also understood that all of the consequences, what happens if they do default, right? So you can't, because people aren't so literate around credit. And so the practices were, were, were very different. And I think um, that translated into very different, uh, it's like asymmetry, a right? So the cost of a mistake in Netherlands is around getting denied credit. The cost of a mistake in South Africa on the model is if you give somebody credit that shouldn't have, so the false positive. And uh, anyway, these kinds of contextual things are very hard to sort of be able to guess if you're not very, very in tune with the local practice in the system and whatnot. Paul, so there, oh, there's so much to, to continue to unpack here. And I want to, to make sure we don't, we, to, your, to your earlier point that we don't make AI out to be the, uh, you know, the yeah. boogeyman, so to speak, right? Can you share a little bit about, you know, the types of tools or even efforts in the AI field that are, that are really making you hopeful and excited about just A, this, the work it's doing in general, but also to your point, the ability for it to combat some of the, the very things that we've, been, that we've brought up on our chat today? 
Yeah, no, and and uh, to my comment earlier, you know, I, I'm also going to be the last to uh, to to uh, to say that we don't have uh, you know a lot of challenges, right, and a lot of room for pitfalls still. Not least of all, the fact that you know, as a community, we're just starting to you know appreciate this. And I'm a little bit biased because I work with people that are thinking about this a lot, but there's still a machine learning community out there that's applying a lot of this stuff in the real world. I think many practitioners just don't have this on their daily let's say, list of things to, to think about. So there is still a lot of work to make sure that this becomes a broadly accepted you know, set of things to think about when we think about ethical use of AI, fairness, transparency, privacy. Those are things that you know, we're working on, we're making a lot of progress, but I think more broader support and awareness of that is really needed. And in fact, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, I think that's a huge, you know, if you look at the teams doing machine learning, there's a lack of diversity and, and therefore inclusion, right? And if, you know, the work you guys are doing and, and the, the, the session we did together, to me, was a, was a reminder of how much we can still do on that front. And in particular, when you think about machine learning teams that are, you know, affecting many decisions about product and, and, and people the products that use those products, it become, it's super important for those teams to be diverse because then they can represent the voice of the, the, the users that are impacted of that. So anyway, I just wanted to also say that I, I recognize there are a couple of very, very big challenges that we still need to overcome. Now, the things that I'm excited about is that we're also you know, doing things in the community to make it easier and almost mandatory to think about these things. I'll give you an example. So, you know, NeurIPS, which is the, the, the biggest AI conference uh, globally, brings together leading researchers um, that are working on AI research problems. This year took place virtually, of course, but, uh, but this is also the first year that um, it was required for all paper submissions to include a broader impact statement so that the researchers writing the, the, you know, the paper should also at least think about, okay, how could this model be vulnerable? How could it be misused? How, you know, how could these techniques potentially, you know, repercussions down the line, you know, what data was it trained on? Because we, in, in machine learning, we train, especially in research that we train a lot of the models on public data sets and those are generated by somebody else. And often those data sets have, let's say a lineage, right? They were compiled of other data sets and other data sets. And, and in fact, the face recognition issue you pointed out earlier, Jason, the reason that was an issue is because the data sets didn't have, you know, the right representation for the target audience they were used on in this case, law enforcement. And that's a huge issue, right? Think about the cost of a mistake there to our earlier point. If you you know target the wrong people or aren't able to recognize people that then get you know that, that's that that that's very very harmful and so as part of the neurips uh, you know submissions requiring people to think about that sort of forces you know all these academic uh, researchers to start thinking about this now you know this is not optional anymore right? so we need to have start thinking about how those models uh, uh, might have impacts on other things and just the research direct research questions we're trying to answer um, but there's many other things, right? I think there's whole lines of researchers working on, on you know, privacy preserving machine learning. So how do you make sure that, you know, as you sample from your data, as you train the models, you test sufficiently on, you know, that you basically have a good understanding of the representativeness of the training data versus the, the, the data you're actually going to be using in, in, in real life. And there's, you know, a, a pretty a group of people that are now increasingly using synthetic data to basically uh, train machine learning models, not only to train machine learning models for all sorts of purposes, but the way synthetic data works is to also describe that is basically it takes a, a 
a version of data that, for example, describes your customers and the transactions they made or, or something like that, and is able to recreate a, synthetically a new data set that has all the same statistical properties, but you know, doesn't include real people, right? And you cannot then find those real people in that synthetic data set, but that synthetic data set can still be used to train machine learning algorithms. And it also makes it easier to then share that data set throughout the company, right? To say, okay, well, we've got this data about our customers, but you know, because of the regulations and GDPR makes it sometimes easy to actually you know, learn from, from the different data sets or even access them because they've got private information. And so these synthetic data sets can now be shared to actually start training models in a way that doesn't risk uh, exposing the, the, the user's data in the process. And there's a whole range of these kinds of techniques that are now becoming available and mature enough for us as machine learning uh, you know, practitioners to, to actually start working with in a way that actually helps the, uh, the, the owner of that data, right? Or the, the, the person that's describing that data. You know, it, from based on what you're saying, you know, something that comes up in our, in our trainings a lot is the, the impact of transparency, right? And it sounds like, you know, some of the themes that you're talking about tie into these, the importance of transparency in how AI is implemented, where, you know, the humans are involved, right? They call it humans in the loop, right? Where the humans are in the loop, who the humans are that are in the loop. I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of tease that out a little bit more and, and talk a little bit more about, you know, just your view on, on the impact and power of transparency in, in the AI space. Yeah, this is one that's um, easier to talk about than it is sometimes to work with on a day-to-day basis because for me, transparency in contrast to fairness and bias is harder to measure sometimes, right? It's like, you know, if you think about responsible AI, there's many things we think about in that context. So transparency is one, bias and fairness is another, privacy is another one, explainability is another one, right? And there's, there's a couple of these themes and some of them are much easier to talk about and agree on a conversation like this and say, yeah, we think transparency is important. And, and nobody would disagree with that, right? Right, right? But then when you actually start, you know, working with people that are, you know, working on these kind of projects, then, then it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? And the same is true with explainability as an example. But in general, I think, you know, just to comment on some thoughts, regardless that it's hard to measure and, 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 and I think their the practices are less mature in general. Um, because it's harder to define as well. You know, some, some things that, that come back is, you know, if I am a user that is experiencing a decision that was made by a model, first of all, I want to actually know that a model is involved. And then second of all, you know, I also want to know, let's go to the credit case. Well, what are the reasons that I didn't qualify for that credit, right? So was that because, you know, my income wasn't high enough or because I defaulted on some debt in the past? Or, you know, any of the other reasons that you would typically be entitled, right, especially in credit, it's well-regulated to, to sort of contest or figure out why you got denied a loan. Um, in that space, it's reasonably well, let's say, uh, regulated that, that the decisions of some of the models should be, you know, transparently available to the receivers and the people on the receiving end of those decisions. You know, what else impacted my decision, right? Was, there, was the final decision made by an algorithm? Probably not because it's not allowed. So you probably had a human in the loop, like you mentioned, uh, Jason. So, you know, what did that human actually do, right? Did, did they get some sort of recommendation, like a score, like a green, orange, red kind of thing? And then they had to like, you know, based on some other information, make a final decision? Or did they just sort of approve the decision of the model, right? So thinking about that, that entire process and 
and these little things matter, right? Because if you kind of like just say binary yes or no, right? So, okay, the model says this person shouldn't get credit or the model says, you know, this is, you know, the probability of the fault that we are able to give or the model says, this is the probability of the fault that we give with this much confidence, right? Like these are the error bars in our decision. It turns out we know nothing about all. So we kind of, the machine gives you an answer because it always will, but it, it's equivalent to flipping a coin, right? So all these little things, if you think about transparency, like, uh, you know, what, based on what information was the decision made, how much uncertainty was involved, who else was involved that, you know, regardless of the model, let's say that might've affected that. So again, you look at the system, right? So, and you know, machine learning is, an easy way to hide part of the decision making in a way, right? So, and I think that's the risk that we run is that, you know, previously you had a set of process and forms you fill out and then a human sort of made a decision, an expert or whatever, and then they, and then, you know, we kind of could live with that. Now there's a next, an additional new thing, which is this model and people call it black box. And sometimes it is a black box, really sometimes it isn't depending on what technique you use, but still it might seem to it from the user's point of view because they can't access the model or contest the decision of the model. And so that's where, let's say, because now there's a model as part of the decision process, the system, you want to know that, you want to know what the model does, what it learned from, how accurate it was, how confident it was, and so forth. And all these other things that would have, let's say, a, a real impact or you know, consequence on you in the end, on the receiving end of that, uh, that model. I think this is so interesting to me because just like you said, with transparency or, you know, how you qualify fairness or how you qualify a lot of these pillars of the system, it's similar to in our space, you know, like how do you define inclusion? Like what's inclusive, right? And we we go on and on about competencies or behaviors and identify behaviors. And I think that's actually super fascinating, right? Because we we don't necessarily have it figured out yet. And with the false positives, like how many clients do we have that are like, look, we have such a huge trust score. Like, yeah, but what does that mean? <laughs> and who did you ask? And how did you ask? You know, so I, I, I love your reference of systems because that's a huge part of our work, right? And, and operating within that system, just as an individual, you are individual system, but also as a part of an organization, as a part of a team. And this piece around decision-making, it's kind of fascinating, right? Um, not just within machine learning, but also as human beings, we always want to know why, you know, and whether or not you get credit is one thing. And then if, if that, you know, what's the decision process of me falsely getting, you know, incarcerated? <laughs> I mean, like taking it down the gamut of impact to your point. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because I think that's a whole other piece. But I did want to ask you because I, I thought that our conversation was so profound and it gave me a chance to reflect as a DNI practitioner and say, you know, I think people like Paul have a lot, a lot of um, great insights for us as practitioners, you know. So one of my questions to you is, what is your challenge for us or your request or, or you know, your ask. What would you, your ask for DNI practitioners to say, hey, we need you to level up, you know, and get to this level because this is what it's going to take to impact, right? And to, to join this fight, like all the other people that are that are part of this fight, what would that be for you? That's a, that's a really tough question, Anna. So yeah. I'm going to try and, and, and uh, you know, give you my perspective, which is probably, you know, I'm not sure how, how much is worth given that, you know, I'm, I'm on the, on the uh, uh, that's not my expertise, right? But I think 
maybe I would go back to the point that I mentioned earlier, which is that because, you know, in the, let's say in the machine learning community, we for a long time and others, by the way, too, outside of me, for a long time said, well, it's the data that's biased, right? And if only we fix the data, then the model will be fine and everything will be fine. And we've learned and through many of the, you know, many mistakes, uh, but also, you know, are recognizing hopefully as a broader community that machine learning is gaining traction, is becoming part of more and more important decisions. Like you mentioned, you know, bill, whether you get bill or not, whether, um, you know, you get, you get treatment from some certain medicines, all these different things that, that are, are much more than just a recommendation engine on, on Amazon, let's say. We recognize that we can't just wave it away and say, okay, it was the data that's biased, right? And there's a whole you know, set of other factors that affect how good or bad a model can contribute to, to us, right, as a community, as a society. And that means that we start to recognize other things that we need to fix, like the lack of diversity in some of the teams that develop these models with respect, you know, if you compare it to the population that actually receives these models, right? And how do you actually get sort of kind of organizational empathy for the per people that you're, you know, in the end affecting, right? Some of them are like me, many of them are not like me. And so how do I make sure that I test my model and the system around my model and design all of that in a way that I think meets the bar for a responsible use of AI. And it shouldn't just be my decision, right? It should also be the user's decision, right? They should have, again, to your point, just like the, the transparency and the understanding, you know, to some extent, and the ability to contest and to inquire about how, you know, that model is being used. Um, so I think my, my call would be, you know, help us become more of a diverse and inclusive community. I think that's the challenge that, um, that you probably still see a lot of uh, resistance uh, against. And it's, that's only the start, right? Because once you have diverse, more diverse and uh, inclusive community and teams working on these kinds of uh, technical problems, hopefully down, this, down the line, you also get better models you know, doing better things in the world. Yeah, I'm gonna throw this out here, but I, I, I wonder, and we ask this question a lot in our sessions, what do you think is disincentivizing you from getting that diverse team? And I know there's a lot of a lot in, in the context of the pipeline, and I know we're stealing from like, are you did you do physics? Okay, we'll we'll take you into AI, right? Like there's there's very creative ways of sourcing some of that talent. But what's working against you? You know, um, other than time, and you know we've talked about bias for action and how that's no, there's never enough time to fill roles, right? So. Yeah, well, I think the first thing working against against me is I'm a white male, right? So I think that's like, I'm not part of, let's say, the, the diversity I want to attract to this field, right? I'm on the side that we have too many of already. And uh, and so, but, but that's, that's not necessarily a problem. I think this is a truly complex problem for me personally. I'll be, I'll be really honest about this, right? Because, and I mean, the, the problem of getting more diverse teams. It's, um, and have you gone through so many cycles in this one? It's as well... The pool of people out there is not diverse enough, right? And um, and that's partially true, right? I mean, it's about 15% of data science professionals out there are are women, right? Depending on which country you look at, and, and you know, if you look at university graduates or whatever, but that's more or less the number. So that's not a good starting point, right? But it would also be too easy for me to say, well, you know, so that's that means I'm only going to go for 15%, because the other way to look at it is, well, listen, you know, I've got let's say I've got a team of 10 people, then, you know. 
I only need, you know, five to find five good data scientists to make 50% of my team, right? And those are there. I mean, they're definitely there. So how, what should I do to get those there? Should I, you know, make a more attractive proposition, do all those things we talked about earlier, you know, make sure the resumes are, do their appropriate screening, give them enough, enough time. And I think there are many ways that, you know, you can actually do that. And, and uh, I'm definitely not the best one that can tell you how to do it, but I've seen teams, you know, like one of the fun things we get to do is look at you know, startups in, in this space. And there are startups out there that basically from the get-go commit, and I mean AI startups commit to saying, okay, we want to have 50% you know, diversity on gender, right? And they're able to do that. So I think it is a complex issue because yes, there is a, a lack of, uh, for example, gender diversity in the, in the talent pool, but you can do things locally. Like, I mean, locally in your company or in your own teams to, to beat the odds. And then we also know that actually, you know, diversity is only the beginning, right? I learned that from you guys that there's also, once you have a diverse team, you still need to do lots of things to make sure that everybody on the team is heard equally and that there is inclusion and that people feel belonging. All new words that I learned from you guys, like what they actually mean, right? And that you can also measure them. There's ways to measure those. So, and also that, by the way, that diversity isn't just on one dimension, right? There's lots of dimensions you can measure diversity on, diversity of thought and so forth. And, um, and so, you know, I think you need to, one, recognize that there are some things you can't affect out there and that, that are playing against you. Like the field is, you know, the talent pool is not diverse. On the other hand, there are many things that you can do that are directly impacting your team or, you know, mentoring, you know, women around you or other kinds of minorities are trying to get into the field, you know, helping people, making sure that you can, let's say, if you take a longer run, let's say I hope to be in this field still in 10 years, then how, how do I want that field, the field to look in 10 years, right? Because if you look at, take that horizon, all of a sudden you have a whole new set of options, you know, make sure you talk to, you know, people that want to get into the field, maybe inspire younger groups of, of women or girls to, to get into this area. So I think there's lots of different ways to look at it. Again, I'm an optimist, so I think you should do a little bit of everything, but at the same time, it's also a complex, uh, complex problem. You know, it's so interesting. It made me think of, I'm sure you've heard the organization Girls Who Code, right? And so it's this whole initiative yeah. for like the future programmers and future leaders. And it makes me think of anyone that's listening, like what's your version of that for AI? Not you particularly, Paul, but I feel like that sounds like a, an opportunity, right? In the field to say, how do we make it cool? Just like you have like robotics competitions and like, let's make this cool. Let's, let's, Let's talk about the cape that I was saying before, right? Like yeah. there's actually like you could be a super, a true superhero in our world, right? And and what the future looks like. And I think, I mean, my daughter is almost four, right? And I just think about 10 years from now, your 10 years, like that, she's like a prime exactly. um, target audience for when you become impressionable enough to be interested in something like that, right? And to me, that's super fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, and, and, and there are many examples in the field, not enough, but there are many examples of, of, uh, of female role models that have, you know, have done amazing things, right? Uh, some of them started earlier, you know, like Fei-Fei Li, who, uh, who was one of the pioneers in the field on computer vision. There are, you know, there are conferences like the Grace Hopper Conference for, for Females on, in Computer Science. And so there are lots of these initiatives that, that you know, in, in a way, we also try to, um, you know, to support by sending you know, people from, for example, the process team there. But with data science for social good, we, you know, we had, that's, that's a good example where 
we had the luxury that we had always so many interest, so much, so many applicants, right? So as I mentioned, at this summer fellowship, that where people would come and spend three months with us, and and, and we work with them on real projects and teach them about how to do data science in a social good context. That we had so many applicants that we had the luxury to to pick a diverse pool, and we could actually say we want fifty percent men and women, and we want a, you know a representative uh, group of people geographically and, and ethnically, and also from a educational background. So we had social scientists, computer scientists, mathematicians, you know, from different seniority, some PhD, some undergrads. And, and, and that's also where my personal conviction comes from that having diverse teams, you know, gives better outcomes and especially in something like machine learning and, and AI. And, and so making sure that we create those kinds of forum, whether it's, you know, Grace Hopper or data science for social good, or, you know, helping, People recognize the female role models in the field, and there are plenty, really, really enough, right? Uh, making sure that we invite those to our conferences and, and speak and giving them the visibility they, they, they recognize because they've been having to fight, you know, for years. I mean, if you imagine, so, you know, someone like Fei-Fei Li or Hillary Mason, there's a whole list of these women. They, you know, they're already accomplished in the field, you know, 10 years ago, what they had to go through to get there. Right. And so, and it's, and, and I see how hard it is still today for some of them. And I can only see part of it because I'm not experiencing it directly myself. There's still a long way to go. And, uh, and you still see un- unfortunate examples of that with, with, you know, the Google ethics team recently, you might've heard of that and, and things like that, that sometimes are discouraging and, and make you feel like we're, you know, regressing, we're making progress, you know, one step forward or two steps forward, one step backward. Right. And, and so, it's, it's definitely, we ha- we're not there and we need to keep doing that. Luckily, I think, uh, you know, for your daughter, there's many female role models out there. If she wants to meet some, I'm, I'm happy to make sure she gets to speak to them when she wants to. I will take you up on that for sure. <laughs> no, I, I so appreciate it. And I, um, I thank you so much for all that you've shared with us. And, you know, on a positive note, I think even with the ethics and like the reckoning that's happening at Google, I think there is... There's a benefit and the benefit is that you have a lot of people that have been maybe awakened or had to take a stand and make a choice on and on how they feel about that publicly. So if you look at her Twitter feed and if you look at just the conversations that it has ignited, I think that in itself is not a small thing, right? So as, as painful as that process may be, um, I think there, there is a benefit in creating awareness around what's happening, even though it's, it's continuing, right? Like the story evolves, <laughs> but I think, um, I think there's a lot of hope in that too. Yeah. It, well, yes, yes. And no, I think indeed it, it does uh, awake, awaken people to, to the fact that these are issues, but it also sometimes, you know, we, we want to make sure that we don't kind of look around and say, okay, well, Google has an AI ethics team and Microsoft has their, you know, fairness and transparency and ethical use of AI team. And, you know, Facebook has whatever. And I didn't think Facebook even bothered, by the way. But anyway, so they have these groups and they, and they pretend to, you know, actually want to be part of the debate, but actually they're not, right? It's sort of like, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's guilt washing. I don't think it's that deliberate. But I do think that, you know, given that the disproportionate amount of, um, in a way, power these companies have and sway in the community, they should be doing way more. Right? And they also reap so much benefit from the community that, uh, yes, I do think that this uh, recent event actually does, does you know, force people to recognize we're not there yet, but I don't think that's enough. <laughs> so I think we should aim for more. 
Yeah, fair enough. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for having me and great to uh, speak to both of you again. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you so much for listening. We hope what you heard today resonated with you. Please go to the show notes and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter to share your own stories from the field. There you also find information about us and how we're leveraging inclusion to transform systems, culture, and individuals. Also, feel free to drop us a line and tell us about your journey. We can't wait to meet you.